And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Luke 13, verse 7 and 8. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts to receive your holy word. And I pray that you would uh, give, bless my words in trying to make your word clear. Amen. The first key that opens up the meaning of this um, very short but um, quite stark parable that Jesus tells um, is recognizing connecting it to the teaching that Jesus has given in the moment just before it, where um, it seems like Jesus is being presented with a very sort of traditional formulation of the problem of evil. Like, did these bad things happen because these people were worse or something like that? And Jesus turns just the whole question inside out and puts it right in the lap of each of his hearers and says, wrong question. This thing you should be attending to is, are you repenting? Because your ultimate fate without repentance is far worse than having a tower fall on you. That's what Jesus is saying. So with that teaching ringing in our ears, the parable then, we're able to more readily interpret it. Like what is this fruit on the tree that the owner of the tree is looking for in the parable, who seems to be a figure for God himself? And then also when we have sort of still in our ears from earlier in the gospel, the preaching of John the Baptist, who links these two very things Sort of the, the arch thesis of John the Baptist preaching is bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The fruit that the owner of the tree is looking for on the tree is the fruit of repentance. Repentance itself, um, a penitent heart, like we just prayed in the Ash Wednesday collect that God would actually make in us the fruit of repentance. It's worth... Um, offering the classical definition of repentance. It's traditionally understood to be composed of three things interwoven like a cord. Um, the first is sorrow for, for sin. And it doesn't have to be uh, sort of heavily affective emotional sorrow, um, but it does have to be a sorrow in the heart, a regret for having done it. Part one. Part two, confession of lips to God. To actually say, to not just assume, well, I felt sorry, therefore it's taken care of. Um, but to say, God, I'm sorry. And that's what we, why we have a confession in every liturgy that we pray as when we gather as the church. That we don't forget to actually, with our lips, say, for all the things done and undone, we are sorry. And then the third component is um, the resolve of the will to not do that thing again. Those are the three, each a necessary component of Repentance. And I feel like I've been learning a lot about repentance as learning as parenting children who are growing up because you see partial repentance all the time, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, but are you just about to do it again? Because you haven't got the message yet, right? Or, or oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm sorry. And it's a confession of lips, but without the heart, right? Um, or just a sort of moralistic resolve to do it again. To, I mean, to do it the right way, but without actually stopping to say sorry. We actually need all three things for repentance to be properly 
repentance. And that's what God is looking for from his people, from people who are sinners. Right? If we were angels, we wouldn't have to come to God with repentance. But we're not angels. We're fallen sinners. And God has been looking for a long time for earnest repentance, for the response of the heart to himself. Um, in the parable, just three years, but through the story of Holy Scripture, three millennia, right? God's been coming to his people with blessings to Abraham, with the law through Moses, with, through the voice of the prophets, and with each coming to the people, his people, sinful people, their response is not the fruit he was looking for. Maybe occasional, temporary, momentary hints of repentance. But no sooner has, sooner has Moses gone up on the mountain than the people are already um, creating new sins of idolatry to indulge in. So God has been very patient. The Old Testament history shows us the patience of God. And in this 11th hour that we are still living in, a vine dresser intercedes. Right? It, would be, it would be perfectly just. I don't know much about um, horticulture. In fact, those of you who know me know that I have the least green thumbs <laughs> imaginable. But it does sound unreasonable that a fruit-bearing tree would, for three whole years, not bear any fruit. It's supposed to bear fruit. So the chance for, this, for that tree would be over, but the vine dresser intercedes and says, ah, let's give it just a little bit more time. And you can see right away the parallel, right? The vine dresser is a picture of our intercessor, Christ. And what's even more remarkable is the strong figure of cut down. When we see the means by which the vine dresser purchases us more time to come to God with a soft heart responding to his grace, the means by which he purchases it is by allowing himself to be cut down. Right? No, no, don't cut down these vines. These, I mean, sorry, these trees. He allows himself to be cut down on the cross when he dies where we should have been cut down because of our sins. But we're given more time, more time to respond to his grace, more time to respond to the chief response, repentance. The vine dresser is a figure for Christ, but Christ's death on the cross was at a definite moment in time, right? 2000, roughly 2,000 years ago. But the ministry of God's own intercession on our behalf continues, not just once in time, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called, here this is Romans 8.27, the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the vine dress is a figure for Christ, I think also a figure for the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, in the parable, because the parable, uh, parables are these boiled-down distillations, it would seem like the owner of the tree and the intercessor are sort of opposed to each other, but God is not opposed to himself. Right? The, that's where every figure, every parable is sort of slightly dark to the truth, in that it's actually God himself who sent the vine dresser and who continues to send his Holy Spirit interceding for us. And that's really what I want to um, dig up <laughs> to, to build on the metaphor. Um, is this connection between the way in which the Holy Spirit of God himself acts like the vine dresser in the parable, interceding that we dry trees who have not produced sincere repentance, that the Holy Spirit is still working on us. I just love that it's a prayer, the collect that we pray for Ash Wednesday, that we pray through all of Lent, 
God, you need to create in us hearts that are going to repent. We can't actually squeeze out tears by ourselves, right? It doesn't work that way. We actually need you to give us new hearts to replace these hearts of stone. So we're the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit on a tree that has borne no fruit. How does the Holy Spirit work? We get two um, agricultural pictures uh, to dig around it and to put on manure. I think, and here I'm sort of offering an interpretation for you to consider. This is not on the page of Scripture. I think the digging around is a figure for the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his church. Specifically, I think, through the preaching of the church. And I'm not here trying to magnify myself as a preacher. The, one of the joys of Anglicanism is that we hold the heritage of the great church tradition. So my words are just a tiny fragment of any sermon you could look up from the great preachers of church history, Augustine and Ambrose and Gregory and Jerome, and hear their sermons, the great teachers of Anglican life as well. But the work of preaching, it really is just a digging into the dirt. It's just a small kind of digging in and partial removal, right? No preacher can ever make a tree make fruit. All, all we could do is just dig a little to take the scripture as the shovel, and just hopefully dig a little bit around each of you trees planted by the Lord. But the real work is the Holy Spirit, who through the, after digging places on fertilizer. And I love this picture because it, reveals in picture, picture form how much God res- respects our individual liberty and freedom as his creatures. That he doesn't just sort of like make us make fruit. Right? He's, well, he's giving us every possible means of grace. He's surrounding us. He's digging all around us and placing fertilizers so that we should produce fruit. It would be the ordinary course of things if we respond with even the smallest plea for mercy. But he doesn't actually extract fruit from us. He's digging around us with his word, with preaching, with the traditions of the church. And then through the spiritual gifts of his Holy Spirit, he's adding fertilizer. And I love the the sort of picture that God gave us in nature itself, that um, manure is fertilizer. That the very thing that brings life to, a, to plants is excrement. It's a picture of life coming from death. And, you know, as someone who grew up basically in suburbia, um, the country smells bad. <laughs> right? You notice it the moment you drive into it, it's like, oh, what's all that? Oh, it's fertilizer of some kind. And I actually think this is a great picture for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That it doesn't, it may not smell very good in the moment. But it is the thing that brings life. And this is especially noticeable, and I think why this lesson is read during Lent. In that it doesn't feel good to remember your sins. It feels bad. And it's supposed to feel bad. Right? When we call to mind, through hearing the Ten Commandments, and we think about the times we've broken those commandments, when we confess with the words of the confession, and we bring these things to mind, and it's like, oh God, I hate that I did that. It doesn't feel good to remember, but that, but that is part of the fertilizer that brings forth the fruit of repentance, right? Sorrow is a key piece of repentance. And so I invite you to think about sort of these practices of Lent, of remembering our sins. You know, in, if you've been praying morning prayer, one of the sentences we pray in Lent is, 
The words of David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba says, my sin is ever before me. I'm always remembering it. And it smells bad. It smells bad. But through that remembrance leads me to repent and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have, we just sang it three times. Have mercy upon us. We are then bringing forth the very fruits that the owner of the trees is looking for. It's also true of remembering of sin. It's also true of um, the self-denial that we attempt to practice in Lent. Um, I say attempt to practice because this Lent, perhaps even more than others, it's been driven home how pitiful even my attempts at self-denial are, which itself is a form of humiliation. I can't even constrain myself according to my own will a little. And even when there's sort of good excuses, like, oh, we've got family over, let's make a cake. It's like, oh, nice, we'll have a huge slice. It's like the flesh, right? It doesn't get tamed from outside, and Lent shows that. But only God is going to change our hearts. So if you're really failing miserably at Lent, join the club and allow it to to deepen a posture of humility before the Lord. We have no power. We prayed last Sunday. We have no power to help ourselves. No power. Only God can change our hearts. And he's actively, through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, right now, I wish we had sort of, like some of those goggles where you could like see different things, um, to see, but we know by faith that the Holy Spirit, think of him right now. So think of yourself as a tree. And right now the Holy Spirit is enshrouding you. He's actually speaking in the unknown places of the heart, where where we are deep beings. He's speaking to you through your ears, through the words of Scripture, through this parable. He's speaking to you through the encouragement of seeing other Christians gathered, coming and, and, and taking a knee to receive Holy Communion, the fruit of the tree of life. The Holy Spirit is giving us every grace and gift we need so that the Father would come to these trees and see fruit he was looking for. Fruit that the tree doesn't really get the credit for. I shouldn't say doesn't really. Doesn't at all get the credit for. Right? Trees are inanimate objects. But the fertilizer, all of the work of God around us, that he's doing in our lives, is what brings it forward. And yet, grace upon grace, God is delighted in the tree. He doesn't just say, good job, Holy Spirit. You did good fertilizing work. He invites the tree to enjoy the blessings of eternal life. all predicated on this response to grace, which itself is a grace, repentance. Amen.